0: Welcome to the Air Health R Health podcast. I'm Erica, a lung and ICU doctor. Every day in my ICU and clinic, I see patients who are there from breathing unhealthy air, and I started Air Health R Health to focus more upstream on the importance of healthy air for healthy people and healthy economies. Thanks for joining me. I honestly did not learn much about the impact of air pollution during my medical training, but the more I practice medicine, the more I see how important this is to my patients' health. It can be hard to help people understand the impact of pollution or how to decrease their risk. We can advise someone not to smoke, but it's hard to even know what pollution is like at an individual home or worksite or school. It sometimes seems that we'd take a look at a whole county and say that the air pollution level there might be safe on average, but that feels to me like measuring tobacco smoke in the air and declaring an area safe when we know that there may be homes in that area with kids breathing sky-high smoke living in a home with someone who smokes, while another child lives in a home with very clean air, and that such widespread data may not be helpful. For those of you who listened to the Radon podcast with Dr. Fields in episode 21, this will sound somewhat familiar. The truly helpful studies had house-level data, not a general county average. My guest today is also interested in a more granular look at air pollution and how community design, such as where we plant trees, might affect it. One note, I reference an app saying it is from the City College of London and it is actually Imperial College of London. My apologies. You can find more info in the show notes. Let's get started. Vivek Shandis is a professor of climate adaptation and founder and director of the Sustaining Urban Places Research Lab at Portland State University. Dr. Shandas studies the effects of urban development patterns and processes on environmental health and justice with specific attention to the assumptions that guide the growth of human settlements. He has published over 100 articles, three books, and his research has been featured in the New York Times, National Geographic, The Guardian, Scientific American, and dozens of other national and local media. Dr. Shandis serves as chair of the City of Portland's Urban Forestry Commission and serves on several local and national advisory boards. During his spare time and with his family, he revels in the mountains and waters of the Pacific Northwest and pines for late-night vegan tacos anywhere he can find them. Native Oregonians will also find it important that, early in his career, Dr. Shandis was an outdoor school teacher in Vernonia, Oregon, under the camp name Chickadee. Welcome to the Air Health, Our Health podcast.
1: Thank you, Erica. It's great to be here.
0: So first, why don't you tell us about yourself and how you became interested in air quality and communities?
1: Sure. Um, So I grew up in a little uh, part of... Um, India, and southern India, about eight degrees above the equator, uh, name of Trivandrum is the city I was born in, and um, really spent the first 10 years of my life in the city of Bangalore, which is also in South India, and it was, Bangalore is often considered kind of the garden city um, because of the large bunion trees and uh, that that are um, kind of all over the, all over the town. In fact, while I was growing up, our apartment building was right next to one of, a a grove of these large bunion trees, and I would come home often to see um, monkeys that would jump off of the bunion trees onto our, uh, the balcony, and I would walk into the door seeing my mother, um, my, my sweet late mother up against the kitchen uh, sink with monkeys rifling through the (laughs) Uh, cupboard and finding whatever they can and trying to be the brave little guy I was, clapping my school books to chase them away, only to be further threatened by them to run into the bathroom then and waiting for them to leave. And so those early experiences of of seeing kind of nature and cities kind of co-mingling, sometimes in threatening ways, um, really kind of got me thinking about what does it mean to have a robust um, uh, set of trees and, and, and insects and, and in some cases mammals also all around you as you walk to school and see cows and see chickens and see monkeys. And it was a very normal thing to me. And when I moved um, to my chagrin, my parents taking me from my friends and family and moving to Northern California and seeing these very clean delineated lines of where the house was, where the garden is, where the lawn is, sidewalks, and yet no life anywhere to be found in the suburbs of Northern California, I was just totally baffled as to how people could live in places that were so replete or, or so so kind of uh, a lacking life and where I'd come from a place so replete with all kinds of life in and around um, the, the immediate living environment. Um, I was just thinking to myself a, a lot as to, and I've spent my lifetime really trying to reconcile the different ways in which we organize the land use and decide what goes where, why it goes there, who gets uh, access to green space, what are the ways in which different people are affected by the, the land uses that are adjacent to them. And so really observing the differences early on in my life really got me thinking about what it means to live in cities in ways that we're cohabitating with um, nature in and of itself, and so that's been at the core of a lot of what I've been interested in. And um, I, and as we talk a little bit more about air pollution and things, that's that's where kind of questions of nature and questions of uh, exposure and those kinds of things really come up.
0: Yeah. Well, how did that you know kind of interest in nature coming coming into the city kind of get you interested in air quality?
1: Yeah. So I think I was um, probably in my um, Probably in my second year of college, I had taken since my since we moved to the United States and California, I hadn't been to India through my adolescence, and I almost, in a way, it was a previous life. And adolescence is such a important developmental time that I had really considered myself like a Californian at that point. Even picked up words like "dude" and "what's up" and these kinds of things as a young adult. And when I went back to India with my mother in um, in in my uh, early 20s, I think I was around 20, maybe 19, um, I, we went to Bangalore and I remember just walking around and seeing the old trees that had all been cut down at that point, just in a decade later, seeing the monkeys that all disappeared. And what I'd come to was basically um, a, a reckoning that this landscape that I'd known so well had changed a lot. And at the same time, I also got a wicked case of bronchitis. And my um, lungs were just burning and I was coughing. I was laid out flat with 102 degree temperature for a week. And I just didn't know where this came from because this was a landscape I knew so well and become so grown up in essentially. And yet it was also affecting my health pretty severely on um, just returning back a decade later. Um, So as I thought about that a little bit more and let that kind of settle, I, I realized that, of course, that was from the amount of uh, automobile exhaust that in that decade had been generated and the amount of air pollution that was from when I left in the uh, early in, in 1980 to going back in 1990, that the amount of development that Bangalore had experienced, especially with a lot of outsourcing of, um, of, of uh, uh, particularly, I think it was like Uh, telecom jobs, a lot of telecom and industries were popping up in Bangalore and the development was just going bananas. Uh, No pun with the monkey intended, but (laughs) it was like one of those moments of reckoning where, wow, my lungs and my body has been physically affected by the landscape I knew so well because of the pollutants that have been generated in the air. And at the same time, I happened to meet a couple of people in the university who'd spent their lifetime working on air quality as researchers. And I was spending most of my time thinking about water and kind of stormwater management. And yet I had this personal, very visceral reaction to the uh, ambient environment and the degraded air quality. And that immediately got me thinking, boy, this is something of personal and professional interest. And I have a training in urban ecosystems so I can really kind of think about how to leverage my interest in trees, my personal experience with degraded environmental conditions. um, And then what does that mean for the community I live in now, which which is Portland, Oregon? Um, so that's that's kind of a long-winded, but I think personal and professional overlap of how I got into air quality.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing that's so interesting is you know your your research kind of encompasses a variety of fields, but you've worked really on kind of the issue of the importance of high-resolution mapping of air pollution. Um, and can you tell me why you think that is so important?
1: Right. So you know, the funny thing I didn't realize when I got into air quality was that the way in which air pollutants and air management happens is often first at the federal level and then at the and then in cases of uh, most of the United States at the county level because the county is where public health and um, kind of that connects to environmental health and that connects to environmental determinants of health and um, then when you get into environmental determinants of health air quality becomes an important part of it and so you have these national uh, air toxics assessment uh, data, like NADA data. Um, And and those are the best kind of resolution we have. And um, it was just really unsatisfying to me when I discovered like, wait, we're making decisions about an individual site uh, at the parcel tax lot level based on county level information of air quality, that just seems really wrong because the only thing that matters is what's right under your nose when it comes to air quality. And if we're looking at a region, you know, that's uh, dozens if not hundreds of kilometers or miles in in terms of square miles, then we need to be getting, we certainly can do better than that. So we got into, so I got into this and I started um, talking to some atmospheric chemists and understanding what it would take to do something like that. I said, it's not possible because the instruments are just too expensive getting instruments set up all over. And you know, EPA has two to three, maybe four at most sites set up in a city, in a metro area. And getting good data is really hard when you have just three or four sites. You can't actually do spatial analysis of what would be directly outside someone's home or, or something like that. The ambient air quality is very hard to s- suss out. So we decided to go after some money with the US Forest Service and put this around a trees idea, because we need trees and air quality play together. Um, so couldn't we go after and set up a distributed air quality campaign where we take a very low, um, low cost approach, which are passive sensors, uh, with little filters in them and just deposit them all over the Metro region, which we did in early in about 2010, we started doing that. And we put up about 144 of these sensors, which at the time was one of the most robust, uh, air quality campaigns we'd done that had been done. And in the U S and Uh, we were only looking at nitrogen oxides which is a byproduct of combustion usually from automobiles Um, and we wanted to be able to look at and it's a it's a criteria pollutant so we could actually think about it from an epa regulatory standard and that was really interesting to us and so we set up this campaign with a phd student who now works for department of environmental quality for the state of oregon and we were able to kind of get with our spatial analysis and some fancy mapping uh, processes, we were able to get one of the highest resolution descriptions exhaustive for a metro region. uh, For Portland and that just really made a pretty big splash at the time because we were able to show at the street scale what the air quality was really like and Although it was just a snapshot in time, we we were able to prove that we can do this with the appropriate kind of analytical techniques and sampling protocol and so As we did that, we quickly found that there was a lot of interest in kind of understanding the um, impacts on, uh, the the disproportionate impacts on communities. So we connected to an environmental protection agency uh, model called BenMAP, which is essentially an epidemiological library, which says for each concentration of, for every concentration of a different pollutant, there's health-related impacts. And so we were able to quantify, in an economic sense, the impact of the current distribution of nitrogen oxides in the Portland metro region. And then we were able to link that to also what the trees provide in terms of ameliorative effect on air pollutants. And so that allowed us to do kind of a, what are we paying for right now out of our pockets for the existing air pollution, a very conservative estimate of $25 million. And then what are we gaining from the tree canopy that currently exists, um, which was around $5 million per year across the metro region. And then we were also able to spatially explicit define where those impacts were most experienced. And we're able to tie it back to an environmental justice uh, question of those communities that were usually communities of color, lower income communities, um, immigrant communities were often disproportionately exposed to this one pollutant that we were able to um, describe. And so that's kind of where that high resolution (laughs) topic came up and we were really, um, have been going down that route ever since, because it's been showing to be very effective in terms of really thinking about what we might do at the local level.
0: You know, as a lung doctor taking care of patients with asthma and I would have someone who would tell me that they were struggling, you know, and it would, you know, and I'd be kind of looking through all the different reasons and I'd see that the AQI was, you know, fine, you know, green, but they would be telling me that, you know, there's a big construction site next door and, You know, I had one patient that just basically said he didn't leave his house for his apartment for six weeks because he had such really bad COPD. And whenever the construction was going, he, he just couldn't breathe walking past it. And, you know, when you think about, you know, if one level, you know, in one area of town, like the AQI is, you know, 500 and the other area of town, it's 10, but it's spread out on average. It's fine, but you're just going to be missing a lot if you're just letting air pollution waft by your sensors.
1: (laughs) Right. Right, it is, it is remarkable. I'm amazed that you actually are even getting to that level of granularity in your discussions and that they are revealing what's going on around them because that is something we've been trying to get doctors and general healthcare practitioners to kind of really identify like is your, if we could create a map with high resolution descriptions, could a doctor or a healthcare practitioner like put in an address and say, well, this is what we're actually seeing in this neighborhood over this period of time. And generally, while AQI might be green, it's yellow or red in this particular part of town because we do see that spatial variability playing out across a across a region.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, you know, because I think, um, you know, I love the American Lung Association dearly and they always, you know, publish this annual State of the Air report, which obviously is really important for looking at where, you know, kind of achieving attainment. Um, but it's interesting to think, you know, to me, increasingly, it seems like that's just, um, because you know you're kind of using DEQ sensors, of which there may only be four right. in an entire region. If you're lucky, it seems like we may be missing um, a lot of information. Is that what you have found in your research?
1: Yeah, I mean the we used I mean, we did a couple of different things. We tried to use the EPA and DEQ sensors to um, understand what's happening, and that's often just a very local synoptic. Um, sample that's taken. It's just what's happening literally in Southeast Lafayette or um, uh, where one site is in Portland, for example. And that, you know, we we haven't been able to get anything that would tell us what's happening. Southeast Lafayette is about what, maybe a mile from 82nd, yet when we do the sampling at Southeast Lafayette and then when we look just a mile away, it's orders of magnitude difference. Um, And this is something that really, um, you know, Put up some red flags for us in terms of like we cannot even tell a community that they're getting ex- exposed to a tremendous amount of air pollution, and yet we have all this data telling us that their um, lifetime exposure to air pl- pollution would affect um, their health and well-being in you know in the long run, likelihood of cancer, etc. And so these things have been really on our mind a lot as to how to help communities better know. For example, it'd be amazing to have something on a phone where if a, a parent is walking a, a child to school to know if my asthmatic child, if I walk on this street versus versus walk on that street, it could be a very big difference in terms of what my child is going to inhale over this period of a you know half a mile, mile, whatever it is.
0: City College of London has an app for that.
1: Oh, cool. Okay. The, I'm not yeah.
0: When I was at European Respiratory Society this last time, they actually have an app to help you pick your route to work or your commute based on... There are quality monitors. I mean, they have you know a diesel problem that dwarfs ours, but it's yeah. uh, it's um. I was thinking about trying to you know maybe if I if only someone at PSU wanted to work on that.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, there's a that I I know the group that actually has been working on that. This group Habitat Map and another group uh, ATH Labs has actually been doing the PM sensors as well as the black carbon sensors in London. And there's a great picture that I have of the mayor of London holding one of those instruments and standing in the middle of a street. So I'm I'm not surprised that they've actually done that.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's hard because sometimes, you know, when I'm you know, when you start to focus a little more upstream when you're starting to be like, well, who who can who can clean this stuff up? So you know when you try to go talk to your county commissioner or your legislator about you know, you know, air quality or your concerns, you know, as a doctor, a lot of times people just kind of point to the sensor and say, "Oh, well, we're in attainment." Like yep. Yep. You know or if we're trying to you know decrease diesel exposure, people say, oh no, but it's in attainment. Why are we doing all this stuff if we're in attainment? And it's right. hard because it it seems like we don't really have a every time we try to truly measure the problem, it's um it's very severe and significant. But then if you're using a bad yardstick, it's mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, you're,
0: how are you measuring your problem?
1: Yes, exactly, exactly and and that yardstick is, You know, can measure in large increments as opposed to the more precise um, increments that we're trying to get to.
0: Yeah. Well, so what is your modeling shown about, you know, diesel particulate matter in the Portland area. And then the other thing I really want to ask you is, you know, how do you measure quote unquote diesel particulate matter because that's the thing that I struggle to explain because it's not one thing. It's a variety of forms of air pollution. And so, you know, everyone is always saying, well, why is it diesel? How do you know it's diesel or versus just PM 2.5 or NOx or anything like that? So would you be able to speak to that?
1: Yeah, maybe just a little bit. This is getting into um, my comfort zone gets a little bit um, challenged here in terms of the the specificity of like the uh, chemical components that we're talking about, and then getting into the measurement systems, because I rely largely on atmospheric chemists who have the, you know, athelometers, they have like the expensive equipment that we put in the, often we put in the back of a car with a tube sticking out of the (laughs) back window and we drive around collecting samples. And we've done that Um, now. Another grad student who just defended successfully her uh, master's thesis yesterday, uh, Kirsten Sarla, She. actually uh, ha- was part of an EPA Environmental Protection Agency project that I have with Dr. Linda George and Dr. Julie Fry at Reed, Linda George at PSU and Department of Environmental Quality, um, Minakshi Rao there. And we're looking, and we're looking there, the atmospheric chemists, Julie, namely, and Linda are looking at the what's called source apportionment, which is a technical term of saying, where does that diesel uh, particulate come from? And while you can get it from you know, um, construction, as you were talking about earlier, you can also get it from rail, uh, from trains, you can also get it from marine, you can also uh, get it from cars and, you know, on-road. The on-road stuff is apparently really well calibrated and the models that are out there, like there's a model that DEQ created called the Portland Air Toxics Solutions Model, PATS, that's the recent iteration, Uh, of a model that was called PETA, Portland Air Toxic Assessment, which was 2011. This is the later version. The on-road is pretty well dialed in, meaning DEQ is worked with um, um, Department of Motor Vehicles, and we know essentially, and then there's also a bunch of like uh, um, monitoring going on around town with diesel, and so they've dialed in the on-road, the off-road, meaning the marine, the rail, and the construction, those are much harder. And so this DQ EPA project really looks to trying to figure out where does that individual source pollutant come from? And marine has been really hard, but trains have been really interesting to look at, and Kirsten's work really speaks to that. And then construction has also been really interesting. So when you see a big construction project in your neighborhood, it's not surprising that there's a whole bunch of diesel particulate matter that's being generated that we're not measuring currently and not required to measure, yet the communities living around that construction site are directly exposed and potentially inhaling a lot of those harmful pollutants.
0: So you mentioned earlier, um, you know, your interest in trees and you're engaging in a study of tree canopy and how that may affect heat and pollution in cities. So what do we already know about how trees and greenery can kind of interact with air pollution?
1: Yeah, so we did, um, Meenakshi's work, actually dissertation work, looked at some of the earliest uh, work on looking at a particular gas, nitrogen dioxide, and the extent to which trees could potentially um, ameliorate concentrations, and she was able to find that there was a direct and measurable reduction in nitrogen dioxide in relation to presence of tree canopy. And that was, um, uh, that was based on the sampling we did in the Portland metro region. And it was a pretty convincing outcome that we found. And so when we talk to the biologists, uh, the, at least the biologists studying trees, uh, we can identify at least two mechanisms by which trees affect air pollution. And one is direct deposition. So there's a particulate matter, there's an, a leaf or a needle, and that particulate matter will collect or con- um, uh, deposit upon that leaf or that needle of a tree. And that's a way of almost like scrubbing the air, if you will. So people put trees next to roadways and things. And when you go measure the, the soot on the leaves uh, or the needles, you can actually me- see that there's a lot there, as opposed to something in a uh, area far away. And so we know that that deposition mechanism works. The other is through stomatal uptake. And actually underneath the leaf there are these stomata, which are essentially the little tiny, um, Uh, the means by which trees are uh, respiring. And so what you end up getting is gases that can fit into those tiny little holes that their tree is actually using to take in carbon dioxide and what have you, the uh, gases can go into there. And that is another means by which trees can uptake some pollution. So we know the mechanisms are there. It's really hard to measure how much is being taken in though. And so a lot of folks have been digging into the extent extent to which um, different species of trees can affect different pollutants and then layer on top of that in different configurations. So a line of trees, a line of um, Douglas fir might be very different than a line of big leaf maple, might be very different than a line of red cedar, and yet um, they're all responding differently to different pollutants. And so there's a kind of a, it, it becomes a quick factorial problem of like, how do you figure out what tree would best address this pollutants? And so generally speaking, we found that, um, at least in the Pacific Northwest, that uh, evergreen trees are often really helpful in terms of improving, it, at least we've seen much better outcomes in terms of evergreen trees in removing pollutants over the course of a year than deciduous trees, and that's in part because deciduous trees lose their leaves during the winter. And so when wood smoke and other things are are happening, there's not as much of the deposition that might be happening. Um, But that difference between deciduous and evergreen has been something that we've been trying to pay attention to, at least as a broad functional types of trees in relation to air pollutants. Though again, I would just say that, you know, there's a carrying capacity of trees, like it's helpful, but probably not a, a panacea, probably not a way to kind of remove all the pollutants from the air. So um, that's another issue. And a lot of people think putting greenery inside the house is also helpful. And so far, studies are finding that it's very marginally effective in, in terms of at least improving indoor air pollution and that an air filter, though um, energy, the more energy um, demanding would be far more effective in improving indoor air pollution. So Yeah, I would
0: also wonder with the deciduous trees if there's also canopy shape that matters, right? So if you've got like a canopy over a road that's essentially making a tunnel, it may not be helpful if you're going to just be recycling you know, air pollution there versus tall deciduous trees that are just kind of letting, or evergreens, I apologize, that are just kind of letting things float by. That's so fascinating to think about. I did notice um, one study published with you as an author that had mentioned that kind of being strategic in planting trees in a city might reduce asthma exacerbations by around 6% due to the decreased um, NOx, um, you know, particulate matter kind of removal. Could you talk about that? Is that, you know, based on modeling specific to Portland or...
1: Yeah, so that's the study I was referring to that we did um, from about 2010 to about 2015, that early part of this uh, last decade. And part of what we were finding is that this is an epidemiological study where we were able to look at the amount of trees in a specific location. Um, It's a correlational study that's relying on the epidemiological library called BenMAP, Benefits Mapping Program. And that is, they have like, Concentration related to specific hospitalizations, asthma, missed school days, and each of those have quantifiable economic metrics that are, that are put to them. And so, what we end up, what we are able to do is look at the percentage of impact from having a cluster of trees in a specific location. And so, that, the empirical data combined with the model, the uh, model that we create, essentially a land use regression model, which is then combined with the BenMap model allows us to get at that kind of uh, effect of trees on um, asthma rates. And so this is, again, region-wide, model-based, though I think we are just scratching the surface of what we could do in terms of actual epidemiological studies that would track people over time and do a whole panel study on kind of those who live near trees versus not live near trees and look at behavioral... Um, look at behavioral um, processes in relation to potential exposures as well. So there's there, there's a lot more to be done in this this field.
0: Maybe you get friends of trees to drop a particulate matter monitor every
1: time they plant a tree. We've talked to them about it. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, that, that's something we're thinking about how to actually measure. Um, but until we get low-cost sensors that are anti-graffiti or anti-vandal proof, it's really hard to put some expensive equipment out there in the city and- (laughs) I'm sure. Yep.
0: So you also have looked um, at the impact of historically redlined neighborhoods and air quality. And can you remind us of what redlining is and what your studies have found?
1: Sure. So redlining was a process that started in the, that was codified in the 1930s around racially focused. uh, It's a segregation process where uh, cities were essentially um, able to, define specific parts of the city based on uh, wealth and race. And so they were graded into four different grades, including you know, every city in the country was essentially uh, graded as A, neighborhoods were graded as A within a city, which would be considered, quote, the best neighborhood, according to the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which is a federal agency that was supporting uh, loans and mortgages essentially to um, specific neighborhoods. And so the A would be the best. That's where the Hulk or the Homeowners Loan Corporation would be, A, um, would be supporting and legally able to support um, mortgages. And um, it's like Freddie, you know, uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac kind of uh, approach. And then the uh, B neighborhoods would be considered still desirable. And that would be, yes, you're still getting loans in there, but you're not quite the best. And then C grade neighborhoods would be considered um, definitely declining. And those would be unlikely to get loans um, and for mortgages and and other services that the local municipality would also hold back from that area because they know it's not going to be very invested area. And then D, which is considered the uh, hazardous in terms of the homeowners loan corporation redlining maps. And um, you can find these You can find your city and its individual delineations by going to a great website called mappinginequality.org. And it's out of the University of Richmond. And they've digitized a lot of these redlining maps around the country. And so what we did was essentially uh, take a set of these redlining maps and look at uh, in, in relation to industrial facilities. Because when redlining was codified in the 1930s and went all the way up to 1968 in the Fair Housing Act, essentially Uh, Eliminated any, or or, um, uh, removed the legal defensibility of these kind of codified racial based, race-based planning approaches. um, There was still a lingering, we can talk about the lingering effect of that, but during that period, the disinvested areas by design had the least land rent values. And because they had the least land rent values, where did the freeways of the 1950s go? right into the least cost neighborhoods. And that was these redlined areas or the C-lined areas, the yellow lined areas. And where did the big box stores go, the C or D areas? Where did the industries go, which needed a lot of land uh, manufacturing? And um, and those went right into the redlined areas or at least adjacent to them because redline was only re- referring to uh, residential neighborhoods. And so right next to those redlined areas would be the industrial uh, facilities, The um, the freeways, the big box stores, the housing projects, etc. And so, what we did was take the uh, red line maps of Portland, and we looked at, based on um, Cleaner Air Oregon, which is a program that the governor Governor Brown put forward in, um, I think it was 2006. No, I'm sorry, 2016, and then promulgated, um, or maybe it was even yeah, 2016, and then. Um, It required a disclosure of pollutants emitted by industries around the state. And so we were able to take the self-disclosed pollutant data from these different industries, the addresses of the industries, and then map them in relation to the redlined areas in the city of Portland and found that that communities of color were living closest to all of these top 10 um, highest polluting industries in the Portland area and that they were all living, uh, that the majority of um, communities of color were um, in close proximity to these industries as opposed to their non-redline counterparts. And so that got us to really think about how the exposure that um, people have to large amounts of, you know, acid aldehyde, chromium-5, benzene, these pollutants, often carcinogenic pollutants that are coming out of the stacks of these industries are falling right onto communities that are immediately adjacent and by design through the redlining process are being exposed disproportionately to these pollutants and so when you see maps of covid coming out of where which communities are most impacted it's not a surprise i saw them over and over again and i'm like okay now we have an la study now we have a chicago study now we have a baltimore study and you look at the redlining maps and you're like no surprise that the adjacency and the what I what I like to refer to as the weathering effect of long term exposure to air pollutants it has on your immune system and your inflammatory response and these other um, kind of med which you know far better than I but these medi- these kind of physiological responses that the body has can have a weathering effect over time and so when a when a virus like uh, COVID nineteen comes through you're already more sus- you're likely more susceptible to it and therefore you're you it's more transmissible and you end up you know, becoming sick. And it's, it's like, yes, maybe communities of color are more frontline workers and have more exposure to people who have it, but also there's prob- likely a more suscept- higher level of susceptibility to these because of that long-term exposure to pollutants, either because of the industries or the freeways or the other things that um, communities, low-income communities and communities of color are exposed to.
0: Absolutely. Well, with PM 2.5 alone with COVID-19, we think 17% of the U.S. mortality is attributed to the interaction with PM 2.5 and COVID-19, you know, and so if you look at the communities that are breathing the highest levels of PM 2.5 from traffic-related air pollution, unfortunately, those maps just overlap.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know those exact statistics.
0: Absolutely. Well, I'm happy to share a podcast episode with you about it. I will
1: look it up. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you.
0: So one thing I try to focus on with air health, our health is also our wealth. Um, We are spending so much money now on unhealthy air and its effects. And you have actually participated in trying to put a framework in place on the economic benefits we derive from natural resources, like just breathing clean air and other ecologic services that we kind of take for granted and don't think of as benefiting us until they go away. So can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, this is a whole field of work that's been going on long before I got, ever got into it, and I would attribute it to folks like, you know, Bob Costanza and, um, what's his name, uh, Root, uh, Root, Dr. Root out of um, Europe. I mean, there's so many of these studies that have been trying to characterize the extent to which green spaces are directly contributing to improved environmental conditions, and whether that's reduction in heat whether that's improvement in air quality, whether that's absorbing stormwater and reduction of flooding. Um, all those are kind of ecosystem services that we have started to quantify and been able to quantify a bit more through programs like BenMAP um, and others. And so part of what we are, um, part of what we're trying to do is say, what is what has nature done for me lately to quote a famous air quality expert, Janet Jackson um, on, on this. And it's kind of like, well, if you can quantify it, then you can, um, then you can actually bring it into policy discussions, and then it has some traction rather than just saying trees are great or trees are beautiful or what have you. We love trees. It's like, no, this tree is providing me a direct service, and that service is really important to my health and well being and my family and community's health and well being over the long term. And so let's try to think about how we um, bring those conversations in. And what's challenging is that when you look at ecosystem service distribution across a urbanized region, the redlining maps are really helpful. And since we were just talking about the redlining maps are really helpful for finding those distributional effects because the areas that are redlined also have the least amount of ecosystem services provided by green spaces, whether they be parks or street trees or green roofs or anything like that. Whereas the uh, greenlined areas, they're uh, kind of quote, the best areas, Often have the highest level of ecosystem services. So not only are communities living in green greenland areas benefiting from mortgages and building wealth over time, and because you have a home, you're able to sell that home, build wealth, appreciate value, and buy and and kind of increase your uh, wealth that way. You're also reducing your healthcare costs and your healthcare impact that uh, other communities that are exposed to greater levels of pollution are paying for. And so these redlining maps have been really a helpful framework to just dis- help describe how planning decisions that were made almost 100 years ago are are playing out even today. And the fact that we've looked over the last 35 years of greening in cities across the country, and we're seeing a new form of redlining that's still playing out—that greening campaigns are not benefiting those that are in red lined or or yellow lined communities, and are still, the trees that are being planted are still being planted in the uh, best or still desirable parts of neighborhoods of cities. And so not only is there a long-term wealth building that's happening in the green line communities, but there's also more ecosystem services attributable to those areas and better health outcomes as we're seeing. And so the the link between planning, land use, Uh, decisions and exposure to green spaces and air pollutants is becoming far more kind of technicolor, if you will. We're getting more more resolved data, and we're also able to kind of identify specific planning decisions that were systemic in nature, because this is happening across the country, and are continuing to kind of pull the rug out from communities that had no role to play in these decision-making processes, and yet are bearing the greatest burden of the higher concentrations of pollutants in the air and so that kind of really is salt in a wound right
0: well and there's it's just such a frustrating there's such a frustrating like zero-sum mentality for this like it's your your point about you know policymakers don't care until you talk about money and it is wild to have just witnessed that I think I had not really you know, seen that much of, or thought that much about it. I gotta be honest. I've been gotten involved the last several years, you know, on tobacco and air um, pollution advocacy, mostly because the American lung association asked me to go do it. And, and it was just because like, as a doctor and patients will do this too. Like I'll be talking to someone about quitting smoking and they just don't care about their health. But the minute I talk about like, what if you can't pay for your kid's food? Like, what if you have to miss a sick day and you can't afford something for your kids, then they care about it. And I'm like, you should care about your health, but they don't, they care about the money they like, and they do sometimes, but a lot of times that's what gets them is when they think about, gosh, like this is costing my family. Like, what if your kid gets asthma? What if they can't go to school? What if they can't get a good job because they miss so many sick days? Like then they start to worry about it. And so for whatever reason, money is this universal language (laughs) that kind Uh of helps people understand it. And this kind of zero sum idea that it's okay even if someone's like morally okay with there being some group of people that's been driven into sickness and healthcare expenditures and this kind of constant drag on their own life and happiness, like even right. if someone was okay with that, I'm like, that costs all of us money anyway, right? Who's paying the healthcare premiums, right? right. We're all right. paying tax dollars into Medicare and Medicaid. We're all paying healthcare premiums. All the employers are having their employees miss sick days, right? Like we're all like not achieving our full human potential where kids have kids have like lead in their brains. Like, there's this zero-sum mentality where it's like, well, someone's got to breathe polluted air. I'm like, what if nobody breathes polluted air? Right, like, we right. could all be happy, healthy, and wealthy. Like, right, right, what if we right. just got rid of tobacco?
1: Like, come on. I love come that, on. <laughs> I love that, yes. yes. You know, it's what just this
0: we- weird way of looking at it. It's like this framing of environment versus the economy or health versus the economy, as if like the price of wealth has to come from our air quality or our health. Yeah. And it just seems so obvious that the opposite is true. Yeah. That, and I'm just not sure if like, you've observed that?
1: Oh, I've absolutely observed that. We only have a certain amount of resources in the world and therefore we have to make sure that those resources go to the communities that um, you know that are able to lobby for them the hardest or something along those lines. And it's like, wow, no kidding. if that's the model that we have set up, then we're basically talking about an absolutely unequal playing field and one that you know really challenges this American notion of like anybody can, you know, do by, by hard work and by diligence and by really, uh, striving for the best that anyone can pull themselves out of poverty, pull themselves out of poor health. And error. And it's like, oh my goodness, that is such a, uh, false narrative in the sense of we have seen how hard it is for any community to be disinvested over generations and to see that that's an intergenerational, wealth gap that has persisted over a long period of time including uh, a report that came out of uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago that really got me started on this whole redlining piece that came out around 2017-2018 where they were able to take the redlining maps in Chicago and a couple other cities and just say those economic inequalities are still persistent today. They exist in the same neighborhoods and that wealth that's been Uh, generated, it's been generated by very different communities. And we can see it in the economic data about the polarization of um, wealth moving into the higher and higher income brackets. And that in large part is by design and redlining and other kind of segregation discriminatory practices played right into that.
0: Yeah. And it's just, um, you know, we'd, if the air were cleaner, we'd all spend less on healthcare, you know, we'd, right. which means we'd spend more somewhere else. Right. right. We'd right. go on vacations. Once we yeah. could do that again, we'd buy the new widget. Like, you know, I'm like, oh. if people are giving money to like, or like not spending it or hoarding it for medicines or whatever, they could be spending it on other things that grow the economy and grow the businesses. I mean, it's just, right you know, the, like, I always tell people, you know, the, the original clean air act cost a half a trillion dollars to implement over you know, 20 years, but it yielded over 22 like trillion in economic benefits, which I mean, I don't know what you're doing for your retirement plan, but I would take a 20% annualized rate of return in my 401k. Like anybody would, I'm like, it's like good investment, like spend the money, put a park in, clean up the construction sites and all those kids, rather than missing sick days for asthma, will like go on to invent the next whatever company and sell whatever widget and we'll all buy it and not think about the fact that we're breathing cleaner. It'll be great.
1: (laughs) Hallelujah. Yeah, Erica, that's exactly it. I would love to have that conversation about where else can we be spending our money?
0: Well, um, thank you for joining me today. And thanks yeah, for all the work you do.
1: Yeah. And, and all the work you're doing, you're, you're clearly a um, yeah, you're clearly getting at this from a social and equity dimension, which I really appreciate. That's great to kind of uh, lift that up a bit.
0: Oh, thank you. All right. Have a wonderful day. Bye. Take care. I really appreciate Dr. Shondas' perspective on both how to quantify the economic benefit of healthy air and how the granular effects of air pollution may affect people on the street-by-street level. I was recently testifying for our state legislature about the importance of understanding the impact of air pollution at a more local level and ensuring we have developed a process so that we do not risk the health of people living in dense areas or areas with high levels of construction. While I was doing so, from my window, I could see Tubman Middle School right by the freeway, where we know there are very high levels of pollution compared to the closest DEQ sensor. I was also speaking from a hospital based in a historically redlined district. These decisions from years ago are still impacting lives today, and we have to be intentional about ensuring that we monitor and address air pollution to not continue to affect future generations. For my donation and to-do ask today, I'd ask you to consider donating to an organization like Neighbors for Clean Air, who is working to clean up industrial pollution in disparately impacted communities in Oregon. You can also plant a tree in your community or donate to organizations like Friends of Trees who do work to plant trees. You can change your search engine browser to one called Ecosia, E-C-O-S-I-A, who uses revenue from searches to plant trees. Learn more about the history of redlining and how it impacts health now by looking at resources in the show notes for more information. We're coming to the end of the podcast. For more information about the importance of healthy air, please visit airhealthrhealth.org and follow on Instagram and Facebook. Remember, if you do nothing else, don't light things on fire and breathe them into your lungs. This applies to tobacco, diesel fuel, forests, and more. Thanks for joining me today. I am a full-time physician and not an epidemiologist or public health expert. This podcast is for your education and entertainment, but should not be interpreted as individual medical advice. Please consult with your own healthcare team to determine what is right for your health. Thank you and stay safe.